Welcome to There Is More To Our Story podcast, brought to you by Salty Gathering, a non-profit research house, event space, magazine, and now podcast. It is here we get to share the voices of Indigenous leaders, medicine women, knowledge keepers, academics, researchers, activists and speakers contributing to this knowledge weaving space, gaining a better understanding of who we are, where we have come from and where we can go to next. You can join us deeper inside of our Soul Seed House. Here we are providing the most comprehensive library of deep feminine and earth-based knowledge, inviting people to become the researcher of their own stories, their own lineage and their own ancestry, radically shifting the academic model of researchers going to study other people as outsiders. You can also join us for one of our events. We have a traveling yearly gathering that moves to a new country and culture each time by invitation. We'll be returning in the fall of 2021. You can also join us for one of our events, our retreats here in Costa Rica called Medicine is Our Nature. All information will be shared first for Soul Seed House members, but keep checking back to the website for all updates. And if you'd like to become a supporter of this work, then consider joining our Patreon community for as little as a dollar a month. You can also support by one-time donation directly on the website or consider becoming a Patreon Bloom Fund member. It is here you get to contribute a substantial amount to a research focus theme country or culture a place where we need to bring greater awareness to and a place that is usually underfunded we're so incredibly honored and grateful for all the support we've gathered on this journey so far my name is hannah ruth dyson founder of salty gathering and i'm so excited to embark on this journey together with you let's begin Hello and welcome to episode two. I am so excited to introduce today's guest, Max Dashu of suppressedhistories.net. And Max is a really important person I discovered on my own journey with this work, really looking into our deep history, our collective story across the world, looking across disciplines of archaeology, mythology, oral histories, artwork, and just really trying to grasp, um, you know, who we are and specifically through the deep feminine lens. Uh, This episode can feel a little bit heavy at times so I really want to speak to that just to take care of yourself. Um, Really it can be as simple as just um, resting, drinking water, being outside in nature. Um, Just be aware that emotions are likely to rise up because this is what happens when we start to wade into our collective trauma um, which is really vital and necessary if you're on the spiritual path at all um, and need to, you know, have this sense of really wanting to be um, deeper and connected to the magic and the power and the beauty of the world, then I don't think there's any other way than going through this kind of um, collective knowledge weaving. And um, likewise, if you've, you know, been raised in school and taught history and been in academia or, um, you know, had an interest at all in history, really understanding that there is so much more to our story, that there is so much more to our history is so vital. And this uh, podcast is a really great 
overview of so many different insights and you know alongside um, some of this more traumatic um, knowledge and, and really understanding okay what have we all been part of what has happened to us as well as um, you know what have our ancestors been um, doing to others it's like the magic that we get to reclaim alongside this you know the treasure that is hidden within our history that has been cut off from us um, across cultures across time it's so incredible and again you can't have one without the other so um, I want to give this warning just so that you can take it easy perhaps take this episode in bites or if you're in a good place you can just take it all in one um we really end on a really light note as well and just um uplifting you know it's through this deeper stuff which is really the medicine path it's really going through the the deep harder work that we get to rise up and experience so much bliss and ecstasy and beauty and really the deeper fulfillment in life so this is a collective look at the shadows and um also um, the magic that we've been cut off from i really hope you enjoy i look forward to hearing from you please rate subscribe uh, leave us a review share with your friends and family um, it's really our belief that this work is important for the world that we want to be in and how we want to shape this better future for all well i feel so honored to have you maxed um in the podcast today thank you so much for joining us for this beautiful thank conversation thank you yeah such a pleasure and i the first question i'd like just to give a little bit of um context with each guest is if there's anything you could share about your own personal ancestry or background well i'm from northwest european ancestry of various stripes we have the Celtic side with the Irish, Welsh, Scottish, and all of that, and Dutch and French and Norwegian and a little bit of Sephardic thrown in there. Hmm. So a nice European mix. And uh, how how did you start really coming to this work? I was in college taking anthropology and the professor announced that men had dominated in all societies throughout history. <laughs> and this was in the context of having introduced this concept of matrilineal societies. And he says, well, it doesn't really matter uh, because all societies are male dominated. So we don't want you women to get any ideas. He didn't say this, but this is my summarizing. You, we don't want you to get an idea that this is meaningful in any way that has any impact that is different than what we already have in this society. So, you know, he presented us this model of universal male domination. But my my ears just pricked up at matrilineal because, you know, I could understand very easily that meant mother lineage. And it seemed immediately clear that centering a society in, in its social weave around mothers or around women would necessarily have different implications than if the whole thing is built around men, which is what we have had historically in the dominant culture. So that was my starting point. I mean, there were a lot of other things going on. I was dealing with full-on patriarchy in college and, you know, things happen. And so I really wanted to understand, is there any place on earth where women are free or have been free? And so I started from that standpoint, looking for matriarchal societies. And it was very hard to research. This is before the internet. 
So you go to the card catalog and there's the section on women and there is wives and mothers and fashion and things like that that were very stereotypical. There was nothing about priestesses, female leadership, women's economic contributions, you know, except in this very narrow housewifery sphere. And so that was slim pickings. And it was the same looking under matriarchy or matrilineal. It was not the whole classification of knowledge that you would see in the library systems, in this case in the university, but also just in regular libraries, did not track this subject. You did not have a synthetic listing of all the indigenous cultures that trace through the mother line. You know, it was just not there. And so like you would get little bits and pieces, mostly through the lens of 19th century male scholars like Bachofen, you know, with his theories. And so it, it became kind of a library prospecting detective work to see if this information could in fact be tracked down. And at the beginning, I really thought, no, they've destroyed everything. It, it's all it's all demolished and, you know, they didn't write it down. And so whatever records there were no longer exist. But over the course, it's now been more than 50 years that I've been researching this. That uh, So I found actually more and more information. And it's very interesting because being a native North American, I grew up in Northern Illinois. In the schooling system, the way we were taught, we had an impression of quote unquote Indian people, you know, the, the, the First Nations were presented as uh, women were drudges, men were warriors. We were given a very patriarchal image of those societies. And it took really decades for me to discover all the evidence for it. Actually, turns out that North America has one of the strongest patterns overall of matrilineal societies. We had no glimmering of any of that. And so, you know, it's, there's this process of uncovering. And along the way, another area that I, I, I was researching was archaeology. I figured the further back in time you go, the less likely you were to have social hierarchy, you know, these systemic structures of oppression. And that really did pan out to a large degree. And so I discovered all these ancient female figurines, starting from the Paleolithic, right? But through, you know, the 10,000s, 5,000s BCE, depends where you are on the planet, there is this global pattern of female icons, small sacred images, which may have been found in burials, they may have been found in shrines or houses by the hearth side, and they are made in ceramic, but in pre-ceramic or non-pottery cultures, they can be in ivory or stone, and I'm sure they were in wood, but it just doesn't survive very well. And so that became a really important whole area of investigation to see, well, you know, because this is withheld from us. You know, um, people talk about the Venus of Willendorf, and I have a whole critique that I published on my Suppress Histories Facebook page recently about that. Don't call them Venus figurines. <laughs> or They are not Venus figurines because of the problematics of naming. You know, because in... European society and Roman society, Venus is a goddess. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a goddess of sexuality or beauty or any of that, but there was this whole patriarchal construct around Venus. Uh, they, they talked about Venus pudica, 
which means the shameful Venus, the, the modest Venus, who is usually shown naked and cringing away from your gaze and covering her body really ineffectively with her hands, her breasts with one hand and her vulva with the other hand. And so the first discovery that came to light in Western Civ of these ancient Paleolithic figurines was by a French aristocrat. And he, being classically educated, laughingly called her a Venus impudica, meaning an immodest Venus, because she just had, you know, her, her sexual parts were visible and without any shame. So this terminology comes out of a whole history that is very negative, very narrowing as to the power of these ancestral women. You know, the, the honor that they were held in by the makers of the old figurines is contradicted by the terminology, which is very trivializing, mocking even. So, um, but anyway, that, that's, that's a, a big area I investigated. And that led me in turn into looking for evidence of goddess veneration. And how did that impact the standing of women in society? And how did that morph over vast historical epochs? You know, how did it change? We know that for Europeans and West Asians, that the coming of Christianity and the various Abrahamic religions, actually, that was one of them, really, the whole, the whole ban on idolatry was very political. It was really charged with a sexual politics because it was banning female images of the divine. That was part of the context. And so you can see that even spiritual culture is heavily politicized in this way in order to shape social values and to convince women that adoring the masculine is what everybody should do. And there can be no spiritual archetypes of female power. It has to be funneled through this narrow defile, this, this narrowed down set of categories, you know, the handmaiden of the Lord. Okay, we can worship in that way. She has to be subordinated to a powerful male deity who is over her. Wow. Wow. I mean, there's so much. I already am so excited to dig into. It's like, yeah, just this kind of work is like nonstop detective work where you have to constantly keep your guard up nearly for the descriptions or the way things are written about because I come across things also again and again that are like really we can describe like these um these female figurines as maybe pornographic idols as if that's the only way they well, could exactly. have been used for <laughs> and of lens right yeah, yeah yeah and I and I love that article that you wrote and I'm gonna link it below for everyone else to to find and yeah I want to share a little bit the, the context of how I came to your work first because I I had been for like a year just in this kind of non-stop like passionate like research of what could I find I felt like I started to hear these right. clues of women's history like it just started to just become a little bit fashionable to talk about goddesses or witches and then I was like in this non-stop research mode and I remember like excitingly after a year away I, I had a family holiday and I, and I remember like mainly telling my mother I was like so excited to tell her and then 
um, like the next uh, day or so, she was like, oh, Hannah, I'm, I'm really sorry to share this with you, but I just found this um, book review in the New York Times. It's of Cynthia Eller's um, <laughs> book, like the myth of, I don't know the title, but the myth of the goddess. I'll link it below as well. The myth of patriarchal prehistory. Right, the myth of matriarchal prehistory. And I remember the New York Times gave this book a lot of space in its pages. And I was like reading it and I was like, every fiber in my being was like, this is wrong. I don't agree with this. (laughs) Yeah. And then we, um, we dug a little bit deeper. And then that's how we discovered you because you had written this incredible critique of that book where you pretty much go through line by line. (laughs) Um, breaking that part uh, breaking that book's sort of um, theories and uh, ideas apart and it was really only through that critique that I suddenly realized the severity and the intensity of academia in its Mm. basis of sexism misogyny racism like everything Mm. and I felt like I got an education um of like the history of academia and why it's like so hard to even talk about this stuff without being treated like you're in a fantasy or you're ridic- like you're kind of ridiculed. And I wonder if you can share at all a little bit the the history of academia or like the, some of the stuff that's happened. I remember you mentioning Maria Gambutis, the way she was um, kind of treated like a witch, like vilified for like trying to even speak about um, like women's power and spirituality and yeah um, she was she was very much ridiculed i think the best joan marler who worked with gimbutas has written about this i think the best accessible critique of what happened what was mm-hmm. done to maria gimbutas was written by charlene spretnak and you can find a pdf of that article on the net she really lays out the horror of the degradation and you know she talks about how uh, certain men referred to her as a sex pot and or she used to be a sex pot you know uh, but someone like Gimbutas who was an archaeologist who had excavated numerous sites was originally an expert on Bronze Age archaeology and she got really tired of all the men and war that seemed to be all the same you know and she was fascinated she she didn't start out with this at all as a feminist project but she was fascinated to discover that the Neolithic layers had a very different picture, you know, and she was, you know, looking in Southeastern Europe, most of her archeology span there. And she brought to bear on that the folkloric knowledge of a Lithuanian who was much closer to the pagan history than Western Europeans are. And so that lens of, of folk tradition that she brought with her, left her open, besides just being as a woman who does not have, in these people's eyes, any authority to declare or interpret anything, you know, the the bringing to bear of the folkloric angle trained even more fire onto her, because this, you know, in the archaeology, especially in the 80s and 90s, where processional archaeology was still a thing, it was all about measurements. It was all about statistics and data. And the the main thrust was you cannot really say anything about the meaning of anything or what the society was like. I mean, they were very happy to look after, search for big men, chieftains. That was okay. But to, to raise the word goddess or to invoke the female divine anyway, 
even though the archaeological record in the Neolithic, the central iconography, is female? You know, you're not allowed to comment on that. And she did. And so they came for her. And uh, she actually predicted to Joan Marler that it would take at least 30 years for her to be vindicated. And she was. Wow. It was just about the right estimate because several years ago, one of her arch enemies, uh, Colin Renfrew, who was lorded by the British, uh, by the UK government, gave a lecture at the Oriental Institute called Maria de Viva, which means Maria Vindicated, because he had advanced a different theory about Indo-European origins than hers. And archaeology and the genome studies are actually showing that she was right. Wow. You know, and she was doing this fusion of linguistics, archaeology, all these things. And now we have the genome research, which is filling that picture out on yet another axis. So he had to concede, at least on some levels, that she was right. And this also proved out in his archaeological excavations, which he's been doing on the island of Keros, which is the Cycladic Islands. And so, you know, those marble icons of women that are like the main element in that archaeology, about half of them were found on the island of Keros. And so after all these years of saying, well, these female figurines, they're toys, they're porn, they're this, they're that, they can't be goddesses. He has had to actually acknowledge that they are found in this island in a temple complex, that it's a sanctuary. So he found a sacral context for the rather larger ones. These are marble sculptures, really not so much figurines as statuettes, you know. And, and so there's all these, these long shifts. Sometimes we have to wait for a while for the concessions to be made because they dig their heels in. They start by ridiculing you. It's sort of like that quote, was it Gandhi or Einstein? I forget who says this. You know, first they laugh at you, then they attack you, then you win. <laughs> you know? And, and because the preponderance of evidence, and Joan and I have talked about this, the preponderance of evidence is there. It's just that we are really what we're dealing with is doctrine. Academia is very given over to doctrine. And whatever is the most prestigious doctrine, everybody kind of hews to that because they don't want their reputation or their prestige to be damaged by, you know, being accused of golden age utopian matriarchy theories, right? And so a lot of the way this goes is a, a really negative characterization, you know, a caricature of the feminist theories that have been put, been put forward. And so mockery is the first line of defense. And Cynthia Eller in her book actually admits that it was threatening when she started reading about this matriarchy scholarship because she could see that it was being ridiculed. And she actually says in the book, I didn't want to be ridiculed. So wow. she instead chooses to join the mockers. And there are goodies and rewards for doing that. You know, you get prestige for that. And if you have, uh, if you take another path and you actually defy the ruling paradigm, then you are going to be punished and reviled for it. So in my case, not being in academia, although that's a very hard path to tread, also made it possible for me to do this research because I didn't have to contend with the level of opprobrium that's loaded onto women who are basically heretics around these, these reigning, doc, uh, reigning dogmas. Yes, I, I mean, I felt 
exactly the same because um, even just being in undergrad, I didn't I didn't go into history or archaeology at all. But even just taking um, a couple of modules in anthropology, I felt choked because <laughs> I felt the same kind of thing. Like it didn't feel because I was not a full time anthropology student. I was just taking a few modules. I was not used to the same language and conditioning and doctrine as the other students who'd already been studying it for a year or two. And I came in with already experience of having spent time um, in one module was anthropology of China. And I'd spent time already with indigenous people in China and um, also, you know, like the Han Chinese, the main race in China. And everything that was kind of being taught or like told, I, I just, there was so much I didn't agree with that I hadn't experienced that I just didn't um, see. And I felt like I was the only one and I got very quickly ridiculed <laughs> also in my classes. So it's, um, it felt very heavy. So to, to also, yeah, be begin this personal exploration, I didn't feel called to go back through the um, university uh, route because it just felt heavy and dense and um, a lot to wade through and yeah I that's so um, yeah I was so shocked to read that it was a woman who wrote that book Cynthia <laughs> and it, it's just that reminder that patriarchy can work through all of us <laughs> men well, all it's women. Also one way that she 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 could expect to be elevated far mm. above other women researchers because of the bias in the power structure, they love it when they can get a woman. Like when Phyllis Chesler's book, Women in Madness, came out, they picked out a woman in the New York Times Book Review to savage it. You know, wow. it's it's part of the tools where it's divide and conquer, which is, you know, I'm really back to this theme in a big way as, a, as the basic principle of domination. And, you know, uh, same thing happened with Camille Paglia. She attacked feminists, you know, really, terribly and she was all over the media in the 90s she was on the covers of newsweek and all the magazines and they all published long interviews with her and she was on tv and she shot to the top because of the welcome the gladness of the powers that be to find a female voice who was saying oh no you know men are men have achieved great things and women are really nothing and you know you have to admit this and <laughs> you know <laughs> it's like there's a way that that happens and there's uh you know this is just this is the way it's been set up now the picture has changed considerably this is still a dynamic but I'm finding male scholars who are actually listening and going, wow, you know, this is really interesting because I always thought that, you know, if we saw women with, you know, memorials to women, like I'm reading about the Daunia culture in southeastern Italy. And so there are these very predominant female memorials, stelae. They're like five to one female. And he's looking at these and his his initial thought is, well, you know, they're, that's because of their linkage. Their fathers and their husbands are important men and that's why they're there. And then he read an article by an Italian woman scholar and she says, you know what? There's a very interesting pattern going on here because women did hold status in their own right. And there's evidence of it on the stelae because women are leading ceremony and women are weaving. And there's this whole complex in Eastern Italy, especially North and South of women weavers, which is very much bound in with veneration of goddesses and you know there's there's a there's power there 
So um, he says, wow, you know, I hadn't thought about this, but now that she mentions it, I'm seeing that too. So you, you can't necessarily always break it down anymore by sex, but, you know, this is a process of having to overcome these old embedded prejudices. And so it is a process. And I'll just mention while, while we're on that topic of Italy that I'm going to be doing a webcast next week. You can look at the Suppress Histories website under the webcast event tab. Uh, it's called Italy Before Romans. And it's a visual talk that goes from the Paleolithic all the way up to the Roman period. And it's looking at the parts of Italian history that we never see, including Daunia, including the Veneti up in the Northeast. I don't have the Etruscans in it, though, because it's already a very large show. It looks at, at Sardinia and Sicily also. So I'll just throw that in there. Amazing. Yeah, I'll, I'll link that below. And um would love to join it also it's um and i've loved that reading on your website also the understanding of really laying out the kind of history we've been taught through school which has been this like narrow um lens on progression and civilization advancement yeah. and so on and how it basically <laughs> discards uh everything not eurocentric it leaves um you know it leaves it like africa after egypt it leaves um you know it leaves rome and, and ancient greece as just as those um patriarchal societies you don't really hear anything outside of this kind of um, storyline that is just fed to us and it's kind of through schooling and then it's just through media these are the same documentaries you see all the time you know predominantly on right. the history channel and so on um, it's so much about war the history channel war yeah. and <laughs> uh, and i wonder if you could just speak to that at all just like the the very eurocentric um and patriarchal yeah. lens well, you know, just regarding what you just said, they direct your attention mm -hmm. and you may not even be aware of it. Uh, certainly, if you're not of European descent, you're going to be going to be very clear that they always talking about white people. And when they do talk about Africa or North America or other parts of the world, there is a lot of bias, typically, in the way they approach it, you know, and often through the lens of the colonial period and not about the ancient history, which they don't know about. You know, this is part of the thing. There are these huge gaps in the way that we're taught about this. Even in world history courses, you, you don't really get anything from a lot of those. So it's really interesting for several reasons, because one of the, one of the consequences of that, first, of course, the damage to people of color in being, having a falsified historical narrative that directs your attention to great Europeans. It's like I had this in, in my show, Racism, History, and Why, lies, there's uh, some different laws of this. And one of, is, one of them is, if it was great, it must have been white. Mm. You know, and, and this is the attempt to whiten the Egyptians or, you know, to see European Phoenician or Celtic mariners who went and established, you know, they're, they're attributing civilizations in the Americas or other places to uh, groups, to Europeans. But the, the corollary of that is, if it was white, it must have been great. And so you have this, this adoration of Alexander the Great, Charlemagne, which means Charles the Great, all these 
titles of greatness are applied to conquerors, empire, empire builders, and often slavers. And so what is adored and where your attention is directed is very deceptive. But turn that around. Once you start to actually look in depth and it's like, where are the women in Native North American history? Where are the women in Central and Western and Southern African history? Then, in all the other parts of the world, Southeast Asia, where there are so many matricultural societies, uh, the Pacific Islands, all of that. Then you start to see very different patterns than the one that ones were always being shown. You're starting to see medicine women. You're seeing female chieftaincy. You're seeing councils of women elders who have the power to veto uh, the men's desire to go to war. They who are in control of the food supply, as Barbara Alice Mann describes for the Six Nations of the Iroquois. And so you get a really different angle of view. And so there's a way in which racism and sexism converge in the silences of what they don't show us, that we don't actually learn about the indigenous matricultural societies because they don't teach us about indigenous societies except within the colonial context of European conquest. You know, yes. and so that's where all these erasures happen. And it's really in looking at indigenous orature because again there's that historical bias it has to be written down it has to be literary there has to be a stone inscription somewhere and we have to be able to understand it in order for it to count as history and so they really discounted the oral histories of all these peoples on all the continents as being legend or myth and sometimes it has those dimensions but the historical element in it is disregarded or simply just denied and by doing that then we have no histories for all those peoples it makes it look like only the greeks only the romans only the europeans and of course the egyptians and the mesopotamians and the chinese maybe the indians in india you know have a history worth tracking according to the way they're they're pitching it at us and so then our job becomes, and this is all what I'm doing with the Suppressed Histories Archives, is trying to really scan the cultural record in any form. It could be weavings. It could be ceramic painting, which is a really rich viewpoint into a portal, really, into women's ceremony in many cases, especially in Southern Asia, uh, but in other places, too, where you see the scenes of pan painted uh, scenes of women dancing together circle dances and things like that or the way their bodies are painted up even the female figurines there are ways that we can look at those and see wow look at the body paint on this one and this one has a serpent engraved on her belly or her thigh and what does that mean but the body paint we know from south america and from australia the aboriginal people call it painting up so that you the way that you enter into ceremony is you are painting sacred signs on your body. So there's the meaning of the symbol, but there's also the combination of that with the divine essence of the blood of the earth in the case of red ochre or whatever substance they're using. You're actually applying essence to your body and you're applying it in patterns that connect to actual dreamings, actual beings. And so, and then there's the whole ceremonial container for that, 
the songs, the dances, processions, the place where this all takes place. And so sometimes when we look at these female figurines, we're getting echoes of what perhaps a womanhood initiation ceremony would have looked like and the way the women paint up their bodies. Or we're getting a look into funerary procedures in burying the dead where the figurine is covered with red ochre and thus symbolically the blood of the mother, the mother earth or the mother, the human mother, the ancestor. And this is where we come back to the grandmother of Willendorf because the archeologist dig her out of the ground in Austria and she's covered, saturated with red ochre. And so they diligently scrub it off. Wow, I didn't know <laughs> that. You have to get the dirt off of her. And so there's traces of it that still remain. We can see that she had it, you know. But um, yeah, there's a lot we don't know even about these relatively famous icons, right? But that, that red ochre connection is this well beyond Europe because this red ochre is used ceremonially in South Africa in womanhood initiation ceremonies. It's used in ceremonial paint up and it represents the life-giving blood. And so when you see female figurines in other cases also, like in Egypt, uh, with red ochre, then we're really looking at a symbolism of regeneration. Why do you have the life giver, icons of the life giver, buried with the dead? And especially if the bones of the dead are coated with ochre, or sometimes the figurine is coated with ochre, there's like a potentizing ceremony that's behind this that has an intention, best guess, of the idea that the spirit of the dead person is going to be reborn, that it's going to come back. And so the applying of the life giving essence to the body or to the figurine is part of a ceremony that says we're going to have you back again you know we want you to be in that great spiral of return quickly interrupting this beautiful episode to speak to you about the deep feminine soul journey that we are guiding in 2021 helping us to navigate this deep work better following the path of the soul, learning how to step into right relationship with all. We're guiding ourselves through rites of passages, initiations, being held in community through council calls. This is really for you if you're interested in this work and you want to find that support to navigate it better because we really believe that reclaiming our history, reclaiming our story, our ancestral memory is reclaiming a better sense of who we are, what we are here for and what we can do next in this beautiful world that we are weaving together and we close our doors for this first spring rite of passage february 27th so you have until then to join we will not open the doors again until summer this journey is a prerequisite for joining us in our october gathering in costa rica so you can join on um, either this spring door or the summer door to join us then and meet us in costa rica but we really want to show up already prepared um, um, really ready to celebrate, to drop in together into this beautiful space of reverence, respect for ourselves, one another and all. Um, so if you've been called to gather in person and you're able to travel in Costa Rica, consider joining us now so that you can be um, part of this community, this beautiful, uplifting space where we get to really move through the depths, really, you know, acknowledging 
the um, the hard things that are um, you know emotional and painful at times to to meet with, but on the other side, really experiencing the beauty and the bliss of life together and really held in this really genuine community. We began our call on February first, and it was truly beautiful and incredible and I'm just so honored to hold space for these women um, that have come together on this path so if this speaks to you join us at soulseagathering.com forward slash house and we look forward to inviting you in this kind of information is so exciting just to hear about because it's like treasure it's like real treasure to discover and I what I sense is when I'm when I'm talking about history um, to others is there's maybe sometimes a fear of like the heaviness of history or there's like a thing. Maybe it's also from schooling people um, are turned off by the subject of history, but I, especially through these important movements rising up right now, like Black Lives Matter and uh, and the ongoing you know women's empowerment movements. I I firmly believe that we can't create real change unless we get really into the history of what happened and what we've lost and then just start to even glimmer some of these clues of like our um, ceremonies and our connection to our bodies and the different ways we were venerated and we appreciated our ourselves and our place on earth. It has such um, far-reaching consequences. It is like a revolutionary act in itself um really going into this history and um i yeah i'm just so grateful again to your work because it's it, to find um like realizing that this was just something i had to follow and keep going with i didn't know where it was guiding me but then to find that you'd already done um yeah like 50 years of uh, of this work has been um so powerful because it's still um while you can find um people doing this work it, it is still um not as common or um as easy to find and and through the internet now even though we have the internet it's still um in many cases in some weird places on the internet like trying to find the truth of um cultures and archaeology and and myths and the way they would change and stories and so on it's like mm. um a real detective detective thing so i love also the the moving between archaeology oral history um mythology and so on is there um any any country in the world that is like truly i mean it's all kind of so um incredible has there been anywhere where you suddenly got really excited early on in your journey that you were like wow I'm onto something or oh um, I you know this is a process of falling in love in love that happens over and over again yeah you know I went through a Siberian period my first was ancient Egypt and that I was still in grade school at that point but everything I could read I tried to learn hieroglyphics I was any books on Egypt I could get that was my first you know and, uh, but, you know, I went through my Siberian period and, you know, it's just like, it's a process of unfolding and, and, and uncovering. And I would say too, about what you were just talking about, that there is this huge movement to do this. There are all kinds of amazing things being written and spoken. And this process of cultural recovery is so key. It's something that every oppressed people does in order to 
they have to heal all this this wounding of the the imposition of domination you know and and the myths of domination that negate their being that negate their history and their greatness and so you see native people going through that recovery process you see women of all ethnicities going through it and it's actually starting to hit in academia too there's been quite a bit more recognition for example of the importance of ancestral veneration in academia than you could see 30 years ago. They're, they're starting to get with it more. And I, I call all of this restoring women to cultural memory because the narratives about what was shape what is and what will be, it's, it's a set of yes. cultural codes and values. And so as long as you leave in place the old white supremacist Eurocentric, patriarchal, misogynist narrative, then you are kind of like under this thick skin. You can't really break through the ice to get to the air. You know, mm-hmm. you have to you have to melt that ice <laughs> or break it. And so I think it's really important. It really gives us a different angle of view, a note more depth on what human society can be, has been. Because we've been taught, like I run into this a lot on the Suppress Histories Facebook page, and I, if I type, if I post like I am now, uh, even before this this latest wave about genocide or slavery or Jim Crow and what I'm calling this racialized caste system of the United States and others as well, you know these colonial caste systems based on ethnicity, then there's always a group of defensive white people who will come on there and and will object and say, well, everybody had slavery. All people did genocide. All people did this. And there's this very strong impetus to deny, Hmm. you know, and they don't want to look at the evidence. And in fact, not all people had slavery. Not all people did invasions. You have groups of people whose only weapons were for hunting and they didn't, maybe they had inter- inter-ethnic conflicts between them and another band, but not at the organized military systemic level that we're used to. You know, it took a long time for that to build up. And that is deeply, deeply intertwined with patriarchy. One of the things that we have to understand about male domination is the degree to which it is wrapped up with the, the early history of slavery in anthropology. There's a saying about this early slavery is female slavery. So the taking of female captives, that degrades the status of women. You know, so there's a way in which racism, sexism, if you in the deep history, are intertwined. And they should not be held up in competition to each other. You know, um, when I came of age, that was like, you know, you're for women's liberation or you're for black liberation. But, you know, they were put in, in, uh, in a polarized opposition to each other. But the actual historical record, if you look in there, uh, then there's a way in which they are very much connected. It doesn't have to be a competition. We have to look at both. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's the, you know, a lot of my research has been burrowing under the, the white supremacist interpretations of not only history, but everything <laughs> to see that there in those in those cultures of color around the global south or in the indigenous world, very different kinds of social structures. And yet we're being told, I mean, white women in North America were told 
well, you know, you have it so much better than the the, the savage women. You know, the, the indigenous peoples were referred to in all these really disrespectful language, which was still really being used in anthropology, you know, in the early 20th century. Um, you have it so much better. You in the Christian world, you have it better than any women have ever had in history. And that's a pretty dire pronouncement considering how it's been, you know, in European or your American society with the legal codes that basically made us, you know, um, legal minors under male governance and, you know, not really economically empowered and, you know, kept out of the academy and practice of medicine or even the ability to be artists. So this was a very deceitful way of inducing white women to adapt to the patriarchy that has existed in their society because at least you're better than those other women. Mm. But, you know, the, the indigenous women in North America was looking at the white women. It's like, well, why do they do that? Why do they bow their heads? Why do they follow the men in the way that they do? You know, because they had, they had spiritual leadership and they had all kinds of ways that they had decision-making power in their own societies. They weren't expected to be sexual chattel. They didn't have uh, economics of prostitution, at least not until after the conquest. So um, all of this intertwines very intimately. Wow. Yeah, thank you for speaking to all of that. It's so important to acknowledge and uh, really take it in, really take it in um, what we've all been part of and what. Um, yeah, has taken place. And a huge part of my own journey was getting into what took place in Europe, being also from European descent and, and understanding, like really, it really sink in um, where, where we lost our earth-based ways of living and our um, matrilineal and mm -hmm. female honoring ways of life. And then how this whole section of... Um, like hundreds of generations, hundreds of years and generations of witch trials and this kind of suppression that I think really wiped the memory of European people of descent of our own power. And I think it's it's really a, a simplistic term, but it's true. Oppressed people oppress people. And I think because we've not even taught it or shown it or really understand it, witches even though it's become more fashionable to, to claim yourself as a witch, it still has so much baggage around and so much um, confusion and just, yeah, it's cultural it's got, baggage. It's very charged. It's very, very charged. charged. <laughs> very negative charge because witch is still an insult. Oh, she's such a witch. You know. Well, it's within Christianity, right? Modern Christianity. It's still um, this worshiping of the devil and this fear around that. Um, but I, yeah, I've also learned so much from your your work around um, witches. And if you could speak to any of that um, sure. exploration in Europe. Yeah, well, you know, there's a couple sides where you started. The ancestral cultural recovery is really important mm -hmm. because we have a, we have a birthright too. And we don't need to appropriate other people's culture in order yes. to get to that. We have to dig back to that deep connection. So there's that part. The other part, which you touched on, is demonization. And that's so key to the witch persecution 
complex in Europe or anywhere else that it happens, the demonization of female power, the evil harm doer, that kind of archetype, the woman who from afar causes all kinds of terrible things to happen because you know women are somehow closer to devils in the Christian narrative or just somehow evil, that their power has to be uh, culturally problematized, right? So um, that demonization aspect, again, that takes us back to some other connections because in the European witch hunts, in the torture chambers, as the women are being subjected to the strapado or all the, the horrors that were inflicted on their bodies by the interrogators, they're being forced by the 1500s to repeat pornographic fantasies for the benefit of the demonologist judges. And the torture wouldn't stop until they repeated these stories or died. And in those stories, on top of all the hideous misogyny that was embedded in them, you know, women having sex with the devil and it was painful and his member was like ice and all this kind of stuff. There is also this overlay of demonization of blackness. You know, so the devils are black, you know, the devil was like an African or he was a black man. And sometimes this means he was dressed in black, but there's this whole demonization of blackness that gets written into the script of this. Even before the, the mass witch hunts, there are elements of this already percolating in European Christianity. And then also sometimes anti-Semitic archetypes. And so there's all these kinds of demonization I have, I'm going to be uploading in the next year a new show that I did recently that's called Modern Images of the Witch, which really tracks both the demonization, but also quite interestingly, the degree to which positive archetypes continued. Like if you look at the imagery of Mother Goose, and there's this old woman riding through the skies on a goose, and she may have a musical instrument in her hand, or she may have apples, or she's the broomstick or whatever. But um, there are there are the images of witch as healer, as diviner, as priestess. If you look at the romantics in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you've got you know the, the the British painters, especially. You've got images of Circe and Medea and other kinds of priestesses, women of power, as witches, but also as in connection with direct connection with power. And sometimes they're demonizing, and sometimes they're meant to be positive, but they also really affected by that Victorian droopy lady syndrome. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they have to be pretty, and they have to be young, and they sort of have to be sagging in, in the picture. Either, you know, So there's this mixture of themes. But anyway, it, it's real interesting just to examine the cultural record and see what are they saying about witches. You know, after the mass hunts had died down. And so, you know, you can see, especially through fairy tales and, and things like that, how even at that point, positive images of the witch and mythic links, like the idea of witches and fairies and elves being connected with Amanita muscaria, which is a psychoactive mushroom, you know, mm -hmm. that takes us down into really deep shamanic levels of Eurasian culture. And so that's one angle, but then also in, going back again to the demonization, uh, there's another show that I'm going to be putting up soon on my new stream on demand channel on Teachable, which is called Persecutory Culture. And so that looks 
at the demonization of women and the persecution of women, which of course the witch hunts is the most best known aspect of that. But you also have the stoning to death of adulteresses and various other female punishments. And then you have the anti-Semitic persecutions, the persecutions of black people, including lynchings. There are all these different forms that demonization plays a very large part in the enactment of violence and in, within systems of oppression. So that, for example, the lynchings in the United States, and also people are more familiar with the lynchings, but I've discovered there's this whole vast pattern of basically, you could call them pogroms against black people. There's, there's dozens and maybe even hundreds of towns that were destroyed or black neighborhoods that were destroyed by terrorist white mobs who came in, burned everything down, killed a bunch of people and sent the rest of them running for their lives. And this was happening in St. Louis and Wilmington, North Carolina. I have it up, it's the most recent note on my uh, Suppress Histories page on Facebook. It's called racialized caste and white denial because we don't know this history. And this is what has led us to the point in time that we're at now, where there's this uprising of outrage against the constant police murders of black people that were going on all along. And that's actually why where the police force in the United States begins is with slave catching patrols going after fugitives who had run away self-liberated. And so the history of the police, but only since cell phone cams made it possible to document the violence in real time so that white people could see, wow, yeah, they actually just murdered that man by kneeling on his neck, you know, in spite of all his pleading, you know, and I can't breathe. And all of this, this is the second incidence of I can't breathe that we've had within a couple of years you know, as, as something that was actually caught on videotape. And so this, I think it's a lot of the work I do, which is very interdisciplinary, is about pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. And so it's pattern recognition when you look at these structures of oppression. It's also pattern recognition when we look at the ancient female icons or the forms of women's ceremony or the snake women or the other types of goddesses, the patterns that are on a global level. And that's not the way that history has been taught to us or religion or anything else. And yet there's a way that we, we have a great need now to know what are the connections? You know, how yes. are we connected? How are we divided? So those are, those are all ways that examining the historical and the cultural patterns gives us insight. Maybe even shows us pathways out. Yes, I, and I, I believe the only way out is to really acknowledge this history, to really take it in and to um, not stop pulling the threads of every kind of, I think the fear around it is that once you start to unravel, it starts to unravel everything <laughs> but, um, potentially in your worldview. But again, on the other side of that and, and every step of the way is also so much beauty to take in so much. Um, it, I think it's, it's, it's perfectly matched. You have to deal with the intense amount of trauma and pain and violence and um, oppression that has taken place and is still taking place. I think that's why it's so important right now. Um, 
really sinking everything in because uh, a lot of people of color, black people have been saying for a long time, nothing has changed like mm -hmm. fundamentally. And the same for indigenous people all over the world, you know, they're still being attacked and uh, forced out of their lands and, yeah. and, you know, just one thing after the next. And it's, it's important for all of us with any measure of privilege to take that in and, that's where we can do the work of change. No more um, still feeding this kind of like white savior model. I think I see throughout a lot of nonprofit and aid work, which is like, oh, let us just go and, you know, <laughs> um, not without looking at the roots of the problem or what we're complicit in. It's like, let's just um, put a bandaid on, on any pro problems that are arising. Right. And, and, uh, and element in that of resource extraction that we have to look at yes you know what, what is colonization you know in this case it's corp it's gone to a corporate global level of taking out the oil the lumber you know which is really the trees right yeah all of these cash crops you know the palm uh oil plantations in indonesia you know all of the deforestation that's related to resource extraction um this is very much related to how those narratives of racial supremacy are used to justify enslavement and colonization and land seizure. Yes, and I, it's like so fascinating when you, you know, look at all um, coming back to these female figures and um, ancient archaeological findings that far you know, they far outnumber male figurines that you can find um, the further you go back in time. And across the world, this is what's like, we were so uh, lucky to have you at our first gathering in Guatemala, the Solsi gathering, and um, just watching your your slideshows every night. It's like the images, again, the patterns, you start to take in how off, like women were connected to the drum, to trance, to ecstatic states, to um, to these initiations and rite of passages, and um, all of this again, this deep beauty. And then my questioning is always like, what is so um, scary about women in power that they have had to be suppressed the world over? Like this um, pattern of, uh, you know attacking the witch, the healer, the priestess, the shaman, um, to the point now in, in modern day spirituality and shamanism and shamanism also being a Siberian uh, like word for, you know, uh, this right. many different names that you, you also um, speak to in your work. Um, it like, what is what is so much to fear about this? You know, like why has this happened? And we might, never fully understand or take that in but um yeah i want if you could speak to it all that that history of magic of and also present day um the, the way i look at it is that power that cannot be under the control of a dominator is threatening to him mm -hmm. so that whether it's women's power in a patriarchal society whether it is native power in a colonial society or within a particular culture if there is a king or a chief or other, you know, hierarchical figure who cannot control that which comes ultimately directly from the divine, then it's a threat to his power. 
And so there's this impetus to suppress it. This is why the Qin emperors were burning books. They didn't want these mystical Taoist scriptures around there, which told people to ways of ecstatic, uh, accessing ecstatic um, states of being. It is a threat because when you enter into those states, you access wisdom. It gives you potency. And so in the case of women, we have the systematic pushing out of women from the priesthood, from religious leadership in patriarchal societies. Not all patriarchal societies, some of them you do interestingly see uh, spheres of power of the priestess or the medicine woman that are retain, retained. But there's a way in which in a, in a male supremacist culture, men have to be seen to be in control. They want that. They desire that. They don't really need it, but they they desire it, you know. And so there is this impetus to push women out. And even in early Christianity, you can see in the Anatolian culture, there were still survivals of female prophecy that actually the early Christians, like the Montanists, who are named after a man, but the two prophetic figures in that tradition were women. <laughs> and so uh that that sacred voice in a female's body was considered threatening because the in the Greco-Roman world, in the Roman Empire of that time, they didn't want to see female spiritual leadership. They didn't want anything that would threaten their power. And so this is a process that goes on over time, and it, it's layer upon layer because you've got the early Christians, and then there's this all-male priesthood that gets established through the Middle Ages and in, in, in to the later Middle Ages, you then with the Protestants, you have this first the Catholic heretics or, you know, the Cathars and some of the other heretical movements. There was this upsurge of female prophetic power because you cannot really, you cannot really completely quash the rising of spirit in any human being who is called in that way. And so there were the, the, persecutions of the heretics under the Inquisition. And then with Protestants, you have the Anabaptists, and there were female prophetic figures there who were speaking around social issues. And the Quakers had this. So you can see this continuing to arise even after it's been smacked down pretty definitively. You know, And this also applied in the, as Europeans overran North America and established political control over all the seized lands, there's this attack on the medicine people, both female and male. The confiscation and burning of drums, of medicine bags, of various regalia. And in the later part of that period, they wind up going into museums. You know, they're, they're confiscated. But it was considered a threat to white power. They were afraid of this. And that was the same with the the stories about witch doctors in Africa and the kind of Uga Booga Tarzan stereotypes that we had from movies and dime novels and comic books. And it continued to, you know, to be a theme, the demonized Africans who are associated with spiritual power. So look at how voodoo, for example, became yeah. voodoo, right? Became so demonized. And this was all cast by the rationalist the age of reason Europeans, you know, in the late 18th century were saying, well, this is all superstition. Having come out, you know, they, they were reacting against the witch hunts, but they hadn't really purged out the ideology of it. 
from their own psyches. And so they would cast their colonial eye around the world and say, oh, the superstitious, superstitious savages, you know, the natives who do these strange things. And they completely didn't understand anything about the philosophical basis or the spiritual beauty or the complexity of interrelationships that were all bound up with these ceremonies, much less the ultimate mystery of a human being who delves into deep spiritual union and by so doing gains prophetic insight or healing power. That was really beyond their kin. According to their definitions, that, didn't, that doesn't really happen. That's just, that's a superstition. A word which, by the way, means that which remains, that which stands over, which does not, uh, which has not been destroyed. <laughs> wow. And it was first used by the church, referring to pagan custom, but it got, a lot of this got carried along by the rationalists. And you can see that also in the way that the inquisitor turns into the psychiatrist, that mm. this authoritarian model of a, of a male expert who has the full power to define another human being in their spiritual state. Yeah. So, um, and this is still the same, like, this is the problem when we're talking about rationality and science today, it's like you can't speak about anything woo-woo. And I, it's my own experience. It's not until you actually experience some of these altered states and the, the very deep um, magic and, um, you know, we're also limited with vocabulary. But this, you know, experiences of the more than human world through um, spirit and then through indigenous peoples. It's so powerful to, um, to experience it and then to look at all these cultures and our history um, with that lens of, of understanding and knowing. Um, have you had like any of those experiences along your journey, which also kind of met the academic work you were doing? Well, I don't know about the academic work, but you know, yeah. I've had yeah, I've had a lot of experiences. I mean, yeah. I'm a land walker. You know, I I like to do incantation and movement. There's this is all part of our journey back. We each have our own mm -hmm. ways of doing it, and that's why also why I spent so much. There were two reasons why I spent so much time working on this whole the series that I call Secret History of the Witches. One is ancestral recovery work. I knew that we had to recover authentic roots, you know, in, in, in those of us who are of European descent, that we had to reclaim something deep. We had to, we had to leave behind all of these overlays that are so just infused with oppressive ideology and get back down to the root. And so that was one part of the impulse. And the other part was to deal with the overlays and to show what has been done to us that was needed in order to colonize our minds to the degree that they have been. Hmm. You know, not just our minds, but our bodies. The the way that the European witch hunts forced women into silence, into into contracting their bodies, into, you know, not speaking, not moving in a free way. And really ultimately their consciousness was colonized by this ideology of a great male deity who was a punisher who would send you to hell and the fear that was inculcated if you were to disobey his laws then terrible things would happen to you it was a mechanism of control and 
there are layers and layers to that. There's the Greeks, there's the Romans, there's the early medieval bishops and all the things they did and all the, all the ways they persecuted the pagan rites back there in the woods that were still going on, even though they had built the church over here. And then you have the ramping up of the persecutions, finally the mass witch craze and the degree to which that colonized all of European culture, but especially subordinated women to a degree internally colonizing their minds, right? To believe in their own inferiority to a degree that had never been reached before. It's kind of the pinnacle of patriarchy in many ways. So both of those sides of the story had to be told. And in telling the second part, the one about oppression, interwoven with that again too is the racism, the colonial attitudes and all of these other dynamics that are still very much present with us as well as a result of this whole historical unfolding, you know, the encoding of domination into European culture and not exclusively into European culture. You can find that in any severely patriarchal society, but there's a very long through line of it in, in Europe and the West Asia. Yes. And Again, I don't know any other way of really freeing our minds and deconditioning without going there because it's so confusing at this time. You have people talking about, you know, women's empowerment or the divine feminine and the goddess and so on. But then if you don't go deep into the history and, and unravel all of that, then you don't know when you're perpetuating the same themes and stories and ideas of femininity also <laughs> given to mm -hmm. us through patriarchy and that's something through sitting with indigenous female elders um, that I've been able to to meet with realizing a very different uh, kind of femininity this kind of and I I call it deep feminine because it's this uh, it's not the passive soft gentle nice it's this yes. kind of, Sorry. Yeah, it's like this str strength and it's like everything that's being talked about right now in, in women's empowerment, like boundaries and um, being able to say no and, and, and knowing like who you are, knowing what you're uh, going after. I mean, to generalize the women I've met, like from the Kogi tribe, from the Keche, you know, uh, these women have already this with ease they have no problem um you know you have to win their trust for them to open up to you in any way there's automatic boundaries um there's not this needing to please or this um mm -hmm. and i i find it also it's intense sometimes in this modern divine feminine spiritual movement how everything is still this um which is not wrong. It's not bad to be any kind of woman or feminine or, you know, person that you choose to be, but um, it's just played out again and again and again. And it ingrains this message of what it means to be feminine. I, I don't know. Yeah. When you say what, when you say you choose to be a lot of times, it's not a choice. It's an unconscious yeah. conditioning that causes you to behave according to set really narrow paradigms of feminine mm -hmm. that are the have to smile, have to be nice, have to giggle. How do I look? How do I look? How do I look? You know, if, if, when women are dancing, it really interferes with their embodiment. And the thing about those, those first nations elders, if anything, they are embodied. 
And we have been, there's such a split in Western Civ to split off the mind and the body from each other. You know, and I think especially women, I mean, it happens for, for males and females in different ways because of the cultural hierarchy that, that is uh, the gender hierarchy that's, that's imposed. But um, we have to, there's this whole process of self-discovery that's necessary to leave behind all that conditioning and discover your authentic self, your embodied self, to be able to embody that without looking over your shoulder, you know, in, in a metaphorical way, because yes. when, when I've seen women dance, they are, they are, they're like, you can see women who are performing for the external gaze. You can see that they're, they're cringing in some part of their body. They're not, they're performing. They're not actually dancing from the core, but they're dancing in ways that it's like, well, how, do, how does this look? Do I look crazy? I think that's a lot of the Western Civ conditioning. You don't want to look like a mad woman. You don't want to look like a possessed person, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. because that is part of the unconscious legacy of all of this negativity around those ecstatic states. They're forbidden. They're really deeply, deeply forbidden culturally. Yeah. And it's unconscious yeah. so that women aren't really aware that that's happening to them. And I've run into this also because, you know, in, I do a lot of uh, net searches for images because I do use images to teach. It's nothing more powerful than actually feeling it in your gut because you actually see the, not what I'm saying, but the authentic image from that place, wherever it is, right? Ancient Italy or wherever it's going to be, you know, Costa Rica. And so I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you, I, I think you come across images. Show you, show you ways of being. Oh, I know what it was. I, I, I was doing these web searches for shaman, medicine woman, priestess, goddess, any Amazon even. And it's really actually ghastly to see what comes up hmm. in the result. Because there are all these really, really pornified ideas of these cinch-waisted, posing, stiff you know, sexually coy figures who are super, super made up. You know, there's there's nothing of that grounded potency, you know, of a woman who is inhabiting her body. It's all about external appearance. And for a lot of women, that's what they've been taught their power is, is how they look. And it's it's wonderful to delight in your beauty. I'm not saying anything against that. I'm saying that that has been colonized <laughs> you know yes. and and if you do a web search like that it's just really i mean you'll see all these anime characters with these tiny noses and these huge eyes pouting out at you and then that's supposed to be you know whatever spiritual category you happen to be searching for you will find that and it's it's i this is true not just of searches in english but chinese and russian and a lot of other languages it's really kind of gone global so that uh, the visualization of pe by people who are counterculture is still unconsciously governed to a huge degree by those stereotypes. Yeah, and so that's something to watch out for. <laughs> yes, and get back to the authentic. <laughs> and there's so much um, power, obviously, in our sexuality and our body, but not 
in that performative way. There's a lot to, um, my own journey has also been unraveling and deconditioning all of that um, experience and, and experiencing dance in the sense of fully embodied, letting go into like uh, the ethereal realm. It's like one of the greatest liberating experiences. Yeah. And so, yeah, for all to be able fully, to experience present. Yes, yes. Um, and this, I just want to re-emphasize for everyone because there's so much beauty and treasure to speak to, but I just, it's, we have to like kind of stay vigilant in our modern society um, of how many times this plays up. I I had quite a few, um, it kept coming up, the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari and people kept recommending it and I didn't feel in any way drawn to it, but eventually um, I was like, okay, I'll give it a listen. I guess I should, you know, take in this um, well-known book. And I can't tell you the heartbreak once again when he comes to the moment where he kind of just with one quick brushstroke um, like ridicules the superstition of our ancestors who honored mm -hmm. spirituality. And then with the same brushstroke, like disregarding Aboriginal Australians and their connection to the dream time. And I, I felt so heartbroken because this book is so popular and it's been taken in as, as our people, as the human history. And to just, um, if you've ever spent any time close to an indigenous society, like if you've ever like even been able to feel the spirit moving through and had your dreams influenced and had, um, yeah, just the sensation of a ceremony and of a ritual and had in any way um, like an ability to to feel that, then there is no doubt in your your bones that this is something real, whatever that means. Um, but it, it, that was just personally, again, heartbreaking for me because there's so yeah. much beauty um, to take in and for us to to feel. Absolutely. I mean, the, the the we've been talking about a lot of very heavy subjects, but the richness yeah. that is out there is very inspirational and this is why you know really right now what I'm, what I'm doing is working on getting all of these live casts i've been doing out as stream on demand so that people can see them at will and not at a specific date and time uh, but that people just be online to access you know so that's that's That'd something that i i've got about uh, six videos i think i have up right now uh, there's one on the healers, curanderas and medicine woman. Uh, there's one on sacred signs, global views, right? There's one on where rebel shamans, which is the, I think you might've featured that at the soul seed gathering. Yes. Women confronting empire out of indigenous, uh, indigenous women's spiritual leadership, basically. And so that's uh, the suppressed histories portal on Facebook, uh, sorry, on, on teachable. You yes, I'll, I'll link it below also because I encourage everyone to take time to also maybe heal. I, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm always trying to understand psychologically what people's resistance sometimes is. And I think even the way we've been schooled, people have um, a resistance to to even, like I guess, I don't know, education in any way. Um, but this is like, you know, coming from curiosity and, and passion and beauty. And I think, again, it can enrich so much of our own lives. I, I am completely changed 
through this work and also uh, learning so much through your work. So I, thank you again so much, Max. This is like, um, I feel like there's so much, uh, so many more topics I want to dive into, but um, perhaps we can come for another round two at a later stage. Sure. And um, the title of this podcast is There Is More To Our Story. And we have explored pretty much all of that through this, uh, through this episode. But is there anything you would like to leave listeners with on that kind of theme and, and acknowledgement that there is more to our story? I think that it's, it's important to know that there is medicine and cultural medicine, the images themselves, the stories. We tend to get boxed in by the limitations and the agendas of the culture that governs, you know, the, the structures we're living in. And there is this, there are all these other avenues of experience. And of course, nature herself is the source for all of that. So, you know, we always, we always hark back to that. And I know a lot of people are feeling demoralized in many ways by pandemic and economic collapse, all these things that are changing rapidly around us but it's so important not to lose heart and that the healing power of nature is the the fount of wisdom and nectar and so that's something we have to find a way to access and then also this cultural medicine can help us it can help give us guideposts yes and thank you for for saying that because that reminds me as well like just to to speak to that, like knowing that there are other formations of society, of, of community, and that our power lies within ourselves and the earth and not this perceived um, ladder to climb materially, socially, you know, um, which is why I think the demoralization is there, the loss, <laughs> the broken system. But the power is right there to reclaim. And yeah, thank you again for, for all the work you do. It's so, um, it's, I can't tell you enough how important it was me, for me to discover your work and just know there was someone else out there doing this kind of uh, macro, like I was just trying to map everything and also look at the patterns for myself and then to discover um, an elder who's already been doing this walk and, um, like paving the way for others. I thank you so much. Thank you, Hannah. I think mapping is a really great way of looking at it. That's what we're all part of is yeah. to remap our, our 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 knowledge in our cultural worlds. And so the the best the best places for people to find you, I'm gonna link it all below, teachable, your webcast, your obviously your website, um, the Facebook page. Yeah, the web Right, the Suppress Histories Facebook page and the suppresshistories.net website, that is where you'll find links to the online course that I'm teaching have been. That includes the live casts, by the way. The YouTube channel, Max Dashu, has uh, free content. So that's a place to see some of the videos, like the, the Magna Mater and Isis of 10,000 Names video is up there for free, a lot of others. And uh, so you can you can follow the links there and it'll take you to all of this beautiful thank you so much and again i'll link it all all below thank you 
Thank you for listening. If you received a lot from this conversation or knowledge share, consider supporting us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. This can be found at patreon.com forward slash soulseedgathering. You can also make a one-time donation directly on our website, soulseedgathering.com. It is here you can also become a Soul Seed House member and receive these conversations and interviews first alongside bonus content, transcripts and this incredible growing library of deep feminine earth-based cultural knowledge. You can also become a Patreon Bloom Fund member. This allows you to support a country or culture or theme or focus that is needing greater awareness and attention in the world. We are entirely independently funded so far, so thank you for every single amount offered to us. It really means so much. And a special thanks to our post-production by Jack Palmer for Alma Chrome. And special thanks to Temple of the Way of Light for offering us this recording by Olivia Aravello, the incredible Shibibo medicine woman, no longer with us, sharing her Ikoro, her medicine song. This was weaved into an incredible track by Jack Palmer. So again, thank you and sending so much love to wherever you are in the world. <laughs>